Let me discuss the epilogue to Petina's book. The epilogue to a book about Latin America's Cold War will necessarily kind of have to address what happens after the Cold War, but Petina can't go into too much detail about this because that would require much more than another chapter. It would probably deserve another book or two. But when Gorbachev marked the official end of the Soviet Union in 1991, he was actually just sort of confirming what everybody knew, which is that the Cold War had ended well before that. He announced in the middle of the 80s the Soviet policy of perestroika and glasnost, which means reform and transparency. Now, there's nothing more opposite to Soviet rule in the 50s, 60s, and 70s than reform and transparency. What Gorbachev was announcing was that the Soviet government would transform from a central body that controlled government to one that was decentralized and consultative, one in which representative bodies had votes and could determine outcomes that had not been decided by the central government. And in short, what he was saying was that the foundational opposition between the East and the West no longer existed. And what he was also saying was that the USSR was admitting that its communist alternative had failed. In the aftermath of the bipolar conflict, for Latin America, this meant that it found itself back where it was in the early 1930s, with some serious social issues and an entrenched elite, and needing to confront those issues, now without the influence of one of the two world powers. In the abstract, that means that there would now be room for democratization, and in many ways, that is in fact what happened. In Mexico, the ruling PRI party lost its first election in 2000 largely because over the last 10 years there were hard-fought and hard-won victories by civil organizations to establish an independent electoral institute, which, by the way, is the same institute that the current Mexican president is trying to disband. In Central America, the end of the Cold War also meant that the Civil War was abated. And in South America, the end of the Cold War essentially meant that military regime started to wane. Only Pinochet in Chile clung to power through 1989, but by 1990, all right-wing military leaders were out of power, and the military returned to its role as defender of the borders. The end of the Soviet Union doesn't mean that socialism or ideas of a more redistributive nature for government disappeared, because for most of the first decade of this century, of the 21st century, Latin America appeared to counter the end of the USSR with the birth of a new left that tried to show how that it's possible to defeat free market fundamentalism. For a period, left-of-center governments in Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela formed what the media referred to as a pink tide, that they could, in fact, create another world that was possible. And in 2005 in Brazil, the Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, who was elected in 1999, proclaimed the aim to build socialism for the 21st century. The rise of a new left in Latin America was a response to those issues that had not been resolved since the 1930s, and that Petina said remained unresolved during and because of the Cold War. From indigenous struggles against privatization efforts in the late 1990s and early 2000s, like we'll see in Bolivia's water and gas wars, and riots in Argentina, the struggle comes from below, and it opens the way for a center-left that, that dominates Latin American politics through most of this first decade of the 21st century. We can understand this shift as a response to economic adjustments that many countries went through. First, the Cold War ended, and with it, the tacit or explicit support from one side or the other. So no more cash injections from the USSR or from the US. That would have some pretty negative consequences. 
Also, in the middle of the 80s, interest rates rose, provoking economic consequences that were felt sharply by the middle classes, but were really felt sharply across the board. And that would generate, in the second half of the 80s and the early, and the early 90s, sort of significant demand for political alternatives. While those demands for political alternatives were generated, new parties emerged, towards the end of the 20th century, Latin America experienced a commodity boom. And this is when the center-left governments also arrived in power. So the commodity boom generated growth across, growth across the board. And it was generated from the export of commodities such as oil and natural gas. And that really allowed center-left governments that had just sort of essentially come into power across Latin America to enact redistributive policies and sort of dampening opposition. When, every, when there's economic growth, there's a lot less to fight over. Everybody is employed. Everybody, the, the majority are not hungry. And that generates a, a, a largely acquiescent social environment. The successes of these center-left governments was often described as a pink tide because they weren't as deep red as the communist flag, but they were providing more government input and control on markets and essentially kind of repurposing some of the, 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 the prime tenets of communist eco economies. However, while the center-left governments did enact changes that furthered social progress, they, they couldn't really establish a viable alternative economic model. Much as the USSR had learned, markets exist even in a centralized, controlled economy. And in Latin America, the pink-tide governments would use the success of their national economies on the global market to initiate better redistributive systems, but they weren't going to avoid the pitfalls of being part of global economies. In the absence of industrial bases, many Latin American countries still relied on commodity exports, which means that their success really deepened their dependence on the world economy. The last problem in the context of this pink tide is that while the region experienced significant decreases in poverty and increases in formal employment, the inequality between social classes in most of those countries remained untouched. In fact, in Bolivia and Venezuela, where the most radical and perhaps reddest or least pink changes took place, new social groups enriched themselves through their ties to the state and the rent stream that it managed. And so perhaps who was at the top changed, but the relationship between those who have and those who have not did not. These shortcomings meant that when the global crisis arrived in Latin America in the second decade of the 21st century, the state was not able to rely on the commodity boom to paper over the deep social and class conflict, and those social and class conflict continued to exist, which meant that in the face of increasing opposition, many of these governments started resorting to more authoritarian measures, which is what we're seeing now. You might want to read up on circumstances in Venezuela today to see what happens to a government that relies exclusively on oil exports to fundamentally fund its success. But what would happen to the two countries that were most marked by their explicit commitment to communism during the Cold War? What would happen to Cuba and Nicaragua when Gorbachev declared the Soviet Union would no longer be their central bank? That it would no longer participate in a Cold War over principles it no longer believed in or upheld? In the case of Cuba, which sold most of its sugar to the Soviet Union markets, which means the Soviet Union and the, the, the sort of Eastern European markets, um, those markets disappeared almost overnight, and the crisis for the island was extreme. During the Cuban Revolution, so very early on in the Cold War, Moscow had offered Cuba low-interest loans, 
and these low-interest loans were going to encourage the purchase of machinery and technical assistance to build factories on the island, ostensibly, to make it less dependent on its sugar exports. In 1972, Cuba became a member of Comic-Con, which was the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, which essentially was a, a union of all Eastern European countries and the USSR to help each other with trade. And this, this membership really drew a, a lot of trade towards Cuba. Comic-Con increased Cuba's volume of trade with USSR and the Eastern Bloc countries. It also provided loans, it subsidized imports of military equipment, and it provided assistance to other countries to buy Cuban sugar at, at really artificially high prices and to sell oil to Cuba at artificially low prices. In general, the Eastern Bloc, which are it's sort of all the Eastern European countries and the USSR, received 90% of Cuban uh, sugar and citrus. So 90% of the Cuban production of food for export market went to the Eastern Bloc. And on the other hand, Comic-Con countries sold to Cuba most of their condensed milk, butter, cheese and flour. And, that, um, and they also sold vehicles, machinery and heavy equipment to the island. Cuban students during the Cold War learned Russian and German in school, so they would be able to then get training at Russian and East German institutions. And Cuban hospitals were equipped with Russian technology and had access to medication from East and Europe, East European pharmaceutical industries. All that disappeared almost overnight. Every one of Cuba's export markets was gone. Despite some industrialization, Cuba's main export remained sugar. It could no longer count on Comic-Con countries to buy sugar at inflated prices. And now it had to compete on the global market, which it had not traded with since the 1960s, or more or less. Despite communism having been an alternative to capitalism, the global distribution of labor and products makes it impossible to ignore that markets exist in either system. And Comic-Con had created really a significant number of artificial protections that left Cuba in really dire straits, right? It did not know how to compete, how to offer a product at a price that it could expect. So if you remember the pre-revolutionary tourism industry in Cuba, it would be one of the non agricultural industries that would return to the island first. Opening Cuba's beaches to foreign tourists would be the first way Fidel Castro tried to access hard currency with which he could then buy oil or medication. Hotels reopened and with it prostitution was one again a main source of income for many who were left destitute in the aftermath of the Soviet demise. The 90s were really hard on the island and on its population. The gov communist government still controls most of the economy. Shops for Cuban residents sold goods in Cuban pesos. And if anyone had earned a tip in dollars or euros at a hotel, those dollars needed to be exchanged at a local bank for pesos. It was illegal for a Cuban to use foreign currency in Cuba, and it was largely illegal for them to travel. Most stores for foreign, uh, foreigners sold things that were inaccessible to locals, like toothpaste or chocolates, and those needed to be paid for with dollars. So what this sort of this two-currency situation created an informal and parallel market. So you'd have these parallel markets to the official ones where Cubans could buy contraband using their dollars. There were not enough, for example, there were not enough official restaurants to support the growing tourist in, in industry. So the Cuban government allowed some entrepreneurs to open restaurants in their homes. Now this was possible if they had contacts in the governments and if they had gardens that grew extra vegetables and if they had chickens on those gardens because it was really difficult to buy enough fresh fruit in quantity. But if you could grow it, you could open the restaurant. You could charge dollars and start that informal market mechanism. Was this in keeping with communist dogma? No, of course not, but it was necessary. In the context where the population was literally starving and medical doctors were making dinner for strangers in order to be able to trade for antibiotics, 
this was necessary. During the 1990s, the Cuban government held on to its revolutionary commitment through the, its most difficult period following the loss of the Soviet support, albeit with a number of concessions to a mixed economy. While resources became scarce, Cuba remained a, really a more highly developed nation in the region, but really, I mean, that's the sort of comparative. But the reason why it managed to do that is because the role of tourism in the economy. In the transition period, since Fidel Castro turned over power to his brother Raul in 2006, and the latter was then named head of state in 2008, Cuba's tourism industry continued to be a mainstay of national development. So essentially, most of the sort of state funding is really going into, um, into tourism. Cuba has received a growing number of international tourists coming to enjoy a range of travel opportunities and, you know, they're interested on to, to visit Cuba as a site of social revolution, revolution, but also there are a ton of eco uh, and adventure tourism, higher end heritage and leisure tourism. So the, the kind of the, the, the early focus on prostitution has been replaced by a much more developed notion of tourism. But at the same time, the sort of the, the, the kind of the, the, the lower end tourism, perhaps this, this sort of this, this prostitution tourism continues there in many places where populations are coping with inadequate resources, where they'll find that tourists will provide a ready source of income and prostitution and sex work will inevitably flourish. Now, Cuba has an additional cachet as a destination because it was so famously shunned by tourism following the revolution, right? For so long, Cuba was closed off to, to tourism. And so now Cuba is sort of a, a double, double attraction, right? It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a formerly forbidden pleasure, and there are forbidden pleasures widely available. The Cuban government was explicit in its commitment to move away from capitalist, market-driven tourism industry, but it's looked the other way when it comes to the emergence of prostitutions. And it's, it's, it's really kind of tragic because when Castro won in the revolution, sort of, we're talking you know, at the onset of the Cold War, he was really effective at curtailing the prostitution that had taken place before it. And in 1990, he barely blinked. And so that ambivalence has a lot to do with what foreign revenue does and allows you to do. And that ambivalence is also the ambivalence in any kind of attempt at trying to replace market mechanisms with non-market mechanisms. You can replace communism with capitalism, but you have to recognize that even in communism there are markets and we need to come to terms with that. And this is really sort of the, the case of Cuba is a, is a, is a pretty, pretty good... Um, example of, of that tension. Now, in Nicaragua, the increasing weakness of both Cuba and the Soviet Union changed the balance of power in, in, this, in, this, in, in Central America. The 1986 congressional defeat of the U.S. Republicans also helped. The U.S. would continue their covert support of the Contras, but there was an increasing support for a negotiated end to the conflict, and, 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 and that was coming from many in, in the U.S., right? So the, 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 most of the Congress was no longer supporting this. No one in the U.S. or anywhere else wanted the return of any Somoza family member. But the animosity towards the Sandinista government, um, you know, grew. On, on, on their side, the Sandinista government was also eager to end the civil war that really sapped its support. And so they scheduled elections in 1987. However, they were 
under continued pressure to fight the Contras, right? The Sandinista government had to divert so many funds from social programs to fund the war against the Contras. And in that context, Violeta Chamorro, a candidate of an opposition party, but also the widow of the murdered newspaper owner with which the revolution essentially began, won that 1987 election. War weariness really mattered here. The people were tired after almost a decade of civil war. There had been 60,000 dead in a country of barely 4 million and, and so many kidnapped and, and so much forced migration. But it also really mattered that Violeta Chamorro did not focus on U.S. involvement in the conflict in her campaign. She focused on the Nicaraguan people. After her victory, she included many Sandinistas in her cabinet and really worked towards a government of inclusion and economic rebuilding. We're going to discuss in a, in a future lecture where Nicaragua finds itself uh, today, but it's, it's, it's not quite as rosy. Now, another significant event would happen in the aftermath of the Cold War, in the immediate aftermath. In Mexico, on, on January 1st, 1994, just as Mexico had joined its northern neighbors in an economic association represented by the North American Free Trade Agreement, an armed rebellion broke out in the southeastern state of Chiapas. In the wake of a ceasefire following 12 days of fighting, a new social movement emerged that contested the direction of the nation's future, as it was envisioned by the PRI. The adherents of the new movement were primarily Mayan peasants, both members and sympathizers of the Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, which is essentially the EZLN. The declaration of war by the EZLNs represented a break from traditional strategies associated with guerrilla movements in Latin America. I mean, the EZLN does not look like any of the guerrillas from the 60s or 70s. After the uprising, the Zapatistas advocated bottom-up democratization rather than the seizing of state power. They advocated nonviolence rather than guerrilla warfare. The Zapatistas emphasized the potential of civil society for bringing about democratic change. The Zapatistas' vision sharply contrasted with the Mexican party politics, and it brought to the forefront a discussion about indigenous self-government as well as indigenous rights that had not been prioritized at all at any moment in Mexico's history. Apart from appealing to indigenous culture as part of the Mexican cultural patrimony and spending considerable state resources on anthropological research, the Mexican state had not considered indigenous people as separate from Mexican citizens. In fact, a significant part of the Mexican culture actually depends on imagining itself as a melding of these two cultures, of the European on one side and the indigenous on the other. Mexican culture, Mexican music, Mexican literature, Mexican food are all sort of presented as a, a glorious outcome of that clash of cultures. And while the clash of cultures happened, and we cannot deny that it's the combination of the cultures that makes Mexican culture, music, literature, and food so unique, but it didn't happen to all Mexicans in the same way. It did not happen to all indigenous people in the same way. And with the Zapatista uprising, the first of its kind, is saying is that it also needed to contend with the indigenous people that had been left behind by this clash of cultures, right? It wasn't, it was armed, but it wasn't really violent. The Zapatistas were not, they were not, they were imagining an alternative for Mexico, but not, but, but a really different one. One that brought to the forefront of all Latin American countries the reality for many of its indigenous citizens, right? Indigenous citizens who were not mestizos and had never been, for whom the contemporary representative democracies did not afford them any place. So this is not just transformative 
and significant in Mexico, but it would also become really important in Bolivia. In 1999, the city of Cochabamba privatized its water distribution. It didn't just privatize the water distribution, but it started charging significantly high prices for the distribution of water. And the response was a series of protests over the course of four months against the increase in water prices. The protesters were largely poor peasants whose access to water was being severely impacted. And they were joined by middle-class university students and street vendors, all of whom had multiple reasons to push back against the government that had since the restoration of civil rule in 1982, not managed to bring back stability or economic growth to the country. And by the way, in Bolivia, 90% of the population is indigenous. You compare that to Mexico, where that number maybe reaches 25%. Now, when those pro so all the people who were participating in the protest were in large majority indigenous. So this was a protest over water, but it was a protest by indigenous people over water. The protest ended with the return of the water distribution to the locality, and efforts continued to push back against privatization and foreign development and involvement in the local economy. And so this this pushback against foreign involvement also led to another set of protests by organizers of uh, the union of uh, coca leaf growers. And Evo Morales, who was the, one of the leaders of the union of coca leaf growers, objected to the U.S. involvement and curtailment of coca plantations. Now, coca leaves are a traditional medicinal plant in Bolivia. The United States was involved in, in, in eliminating coca plant, plantations because after significant processing, it becomes cocaine, which the United States has a slight problem with. Evo Morales was really, really um, extremely active in advocating for indigenous use of the coca leaves and as, as a reason for curtailing, as really sort of limiting the impact of, of foreigners on the, uh, on the industry. And his actions on behalf of indigenous usage and practice, practices really raised his national pro profile to the point where in 2006 he became the country's first indigenous president. Morales has since been implicated in more than one abuse of power, um, as well as inappropriate behavior with minors, but this really should not prevent us from recognizing the watershed moment that it was when he was elected. In most Latin American countries, indigenous peoples continue to face glass ceilings and structural barriers that limit their full and equal social and economic inclusion. In Bolivia, an indigenous man became president. While indigenous peoples make up 80%, eight, sorry, 8% of the average population across Latin America, they represent approximately 40% of the poor in Latin America and 17% of the extremely poor. Contrary to many perceptions, nearly half of Latin America's indigenous people now live in urban areas and in the cities. They live in areas that are less secure, less sanitary, and more disaster prone than any non-indigenous urban residents. The correlation between being indigenous and being poor is really quite strong. The Zapatista movement, the Cochabamba protests, the rise of Emo Morales, among other transformations, has allowed for a shift in perception that the indigenous issues need to be seen through a different lens than simply a matter of economic uncertainty, but one of cultural inclusion, of political representation, and national education. This could not have happened during the Cold War. There was no room to think about complex problems like these and to think about non-traditional solutions to those problems. To close out the discussion of the short epilogue to the book and to depart from it, the 21st century presents Latin America with a series of new challenges most of which are really too close in time for us to be able to approach historically, 
all of which will eventually be studied by historians, who will doubtless pull the Cold War into their analysis and put it into context to explain the transformations that are currently underway. And that's it for this particular book.